All right, thank you, Pastor Mark, and uh, thank you for those kind words, uh, for the opportunity to open up God's Word with all of you, and uh, thank you for asking for prayers for uh, the church plant. Uh, yeah, we're, we're aiming for somewhere in the Santa Clara area, uh, somewhere uh, in the north side of the South Bay, and uh, just looking to be another solid, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting church uh, in that area and to be a light for the gospel there. Uh, It's not going to happen anytime soon. It's going to happen next fall, so we're giving ourselves about a year to prepare for that. And so, yes, definitely would appreciate uh, prayers uh, for that. Uh, It is a joy to be here uh, and a joy to see you all. Last time I was here, which was about a year ago, I wasn't able to see you because we were in the thick of COVID and everything was live streamed over YouTube. Uh, So really, I preached to Ted and to Peter, and it was pretty discouraging when one of them fell asleep. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. Uh, Let's talk about first impressions. Have you ever been with a friend, even your best friend, a roommate, or someone you've known for a long time and asked that dangerous question. Hey, what was your first impression of me? Now don't ask that question unless you're ready for the answer. If you turn to the person next to you and ask them, hey, what, what was your first impression of me? You'd probably get some shocking answers. Uh, One day I was hanging out with one of my college roommates and we were talking about first impressions and I asked him this dangerous question. What was your first impression of me? And he sighed, I don't really want to go there. I'm like, no, 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 just just tell me. You know, we're we're friends now, we're fine. No, I I don't want to. Like, no, and I begged him, come on, tell me. What was your first impression of me? And he said, okay, you asked for it. His exact words, opposite of a gangster. And I was like, you don't know me. And if I, if I did do that, yeah, I would prove his point. Uh, so, you know, I said, can you elaborate a little bit more? And he said, nerdy church boy. And I was like, okay, you know, his assessment was pretty correct. But at the same time, I would like to think that there's a little bit more to me than just nerdy church boy. And after knowing Eric for about 15 years now, I think that he would tell you the same, that uh, there's a lot more things that he knows about me. He knows what I'm passionate about. He knows my hobbies, my likes and dislikes. He knows what makes me laugh. And he knows my strengths and weaknesses. And and now, after all these years of friendship, uh, he would say that there, he, he would know much more about me, uh, tons more, than what he first gathered from that first impression. You see, first impressions are often wrong and at best only partially correct because we only have a slice of the pie. Uh, we need more data. Uh, we need more information. Uh, it's just one interaction. Even our best friends, even our spouses, we're learning new things about them years into the relationship, decades into the relationship. Well, today we're going to look at a passage that helps us get to know Jesus. And I want to ask in the very beginning of this sermon for a little humility on all of our parts to humbly admit that we don't know everything there is to know about Jesus. Yes, you've been a Christian for a long time. Yes, you've studied the Bible quite a bit. But can you admit that you don't fully know 
who Jesus is, that that you don't have a 100% accurate view of who your Savior is. There, There are passages that you haven't studied. There are things about Jesus that you have forgotten. And there are biases that you have that distort your view of Christ because you want him to be a certain way. Uh, We all have, at least to a small degree, a carnival mirror perception of who Jesus is. Yes, it's the real Jesus. But there are parts of him that we exaggerate and parts of him that we distort. So let's begin by humbly admitting that I don't know Jesus perfectly. My impression of him could actually be wrong. Where, where am I exaggerating him and where am I distorting him? Where am I twisting the truth about him? And if you approach this passage that we're going to look at today with this kind of humility, I know that it's going to benefit you a lot because this passage will fill in some gaps of your knowledge of Jesus and correct some misperceptions that you might have. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and our passage is going to cover verses 12 to 18. Now, Revelation, this very last book of the Bible, is a famous book known mainly for how weird it is. Mainly known for how it keeps kids up at night uh, with a beast and a red dragon and demon locusts that have faces like humans teeth like lions, and hair like women. But before we get into all of that, we get this portrait of Jesus Christ. All the way back in chapter 1, Jesus stands at the gateway of this great book, and you have to go through him in order to rightly interpret the rest of the book. So let's read this portrait of Jesus, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. The apostle John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But... He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let me ask you this. Why is the book of Revelation called Revelation? Well, it's because it is a revealing of something. Yes, it is the revealing of the end times. Yes, it is a revealing of God's timeline for future events. 
Uh, yes, it is a, a revealing of details of what's going to happen in the eschaton. That is uh, the, the end of God's calendar. It reveals a rapture, a seven-year tribulation, a kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. But primarily, predominantly, and most importantly, the book of Revelation is a revealing of Jesus Christ himself. This book reaches a crescendo in chapter 19 when the heavens are split open and Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, comes down riding on a white horse, touches down to earth and establishes his kingdom. And everything leading up to chapter 19 is simply a foreshadow of this great revelation of Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, we have one of those foreshadows. We have one of those signposts that are pointing to this great revealing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Just as a heads up, studying these upcoming verses is kind of like being on a roller coaster. It's intense. It's going to get your heart rate up. But it's also like a roller coaster in that it can give you a little bit of whiplash. You know, you're on this roller coaster, right? And sometimes in the middle of it, it slows down. Sometimes even almost comes to a halt. And you're like, oh man, people said that roller coaster was bad. Oh, that wasn't that bad. Oh, you know, and then it starts speeding up again. And that can give you a little bit of whiplash. And this passage is kind of like that. It goes from zero to 100, back to zero, back to 100, back and forth. Uh, it goes from Jesus being gentle to terrifying. Gentle to terrifying and Uh, Reading through this passage can give you a little bit of a case of spiritual whiplash. So today we're going to see these three descriptions of Jesus. The three descriptions of Jesus. I'll give them to you up front. Jesus as the high priest, verses 12 to 13. The eternal judge, verses 14 to 16. And the resurrected savior, in verses 17 to 18. The high priest, the eternal judge, and the resurrected Savior. First, we see Jesus as the high priest in verses 12 to 13. On this roller coaster, we start slow. We start with gentle Jesus. Let's read verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In this vision that the Apostle John is given while he's exiled on the island of Patmos, he first sees not Jesus, but seven golden lampstands. And this symbol is interpreted for us. If you take a peek down at verse 20, you see exactly what these seven lampstands represent. Verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, The seven lampstands represent the seven churches mentioned in verse 11. Uh, Take a look there. Uh, These are actual churches around Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
And among these lampstands, which represent churches, John sees what he says, one like the Son of Man. A human being who's wearing some interesting clothing, clothing that immediately catches John's eye. Verse 13 says he's wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, which is the clothing of a priest. Uh, That word for long robe has an equivalent in the Old Testament, and it's used seven times. Six out of the seven times, it's referring to the clothing of a priest. And then, uh, not only that, priests are said to wear sashes around their chest. Just one example here, Exodus 28.4, these are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. So standing before John is a priest. Now in the Old Testament, you couldn't approach God on your own. You needed a priest. You needed a mediator. Uh, You needed one who would slay an animal, a bull or a goat, a lamb or a turtle dove on your behalf. And only through the blood of this animal could you come into God's presence. Only then could you worship him in his temple. Now notice that Jesus' sash is gold. Uh, This is abnormal. This, this, This pops. This sticks out. The one wearing this sash must be a priest of remarkable standing. Uh, This must be not just a high priest, but a great high priest. The final priest. The only priest that we truly need. The high priest who ended the entire sacrificial system. The ultimate mediator between God and man. Jesus is not just any high priest. He is the great high priest because he is not just a priest, but he is also the sacrifice. In the Old Testament, these priests would sacrifice animals. But here, this high priest sacrifices himself. He puts his own body on the altar of the cross and gives his own blood for us, fully atoning for sin, finally taking the punishment for all sin, fully, finally, once and for all, bringing us home to God. This is the act of our great high priest. And John sees this, high priest, the long robe and golden sash, walking among the lampstands, which represent the church, he would have found comfort. That the one who, in the midst of the church, no matter what's going on with the church, no matter what kind of turmoil, persecution is happening in the church, the one walking among the church is our high priest who laid his life down for ours, who finally atoned for sin. The one who loves the church. This is the one who is personally present in the church. And then in verses 14 to 16, we get our first jolt on the roller coaster. Somebody's pushed the accelerator button, propelling us from gentle high priest 
to fiery eternal judge. Uh, Let's look secondly at Jesus as the eternal judge. Verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Jesus' snow white hair is a reference to his great age. Now in our society, we don't so much value the process of aging. On the contrary, we value people who can continue looking young and continue looking youthful. But here's the the biblical view on old age. Proverbs 16.31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Jesus here has pure white hair. He is very, very old. And thus, he is to be very, very honored. He has within him all of the the age of the centuries, of the millennia. And here, as with several of these descriptions, John is referencing back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 9 says this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Daniel is describing the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and says his hair is white like wool. And John has no problems. He has no reservations whatsoever pointing back to this description of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and applying it to Jesus, God the Son, showing that Jesus is indeed God, that he is fully divine. So we've seen his hair. What about his eyes? Verse 14 tells us they were like a flame of fire. And here's our first indication that this one comes in judgment. Uh, His eyes are on fire. His eyes are not full of love here. They're full of fire. Verse 15 says that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. This is also how Ezekiel describes the brilliant glory of God as well. Jesus' feet look not just like ordinary bronze, but bronze burnished in a fire, like freshly taken out of the fire so that it's at the peak of its its heat, uh, so hot that it's glowing. And then at the end of verse 16, John adds that his face shines like the sun at full strength. The face of Jesus shines like the sun at 12 noon without a cloud in the sky in its full strength. This is the shining, radiant glory of God himself. Verse 15 also says that his voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you ever tried to argue with a waterfall? If you have, one, you're weird. Two, you would lose. I was up in Yosemite a couple months ago, and uh, we took a hike to the falls. And 
uh, I got three boys and they're adventurous, so we want to get as close to the waterfall as possible. And so we climbed those rocks, and I remember the the mist getting on us. We're we're drenched in in water. We're wet because we're so close. And the, I just remember hearing the deafening roar of this waterfall. And I remember trying to say something to my oldest son, and it was absolutely pointless. There was no way that he was going to hear me. So instead, we just sat next to each other and listened to the thunderous sound of this waterfall. And that's the idea that we see here. The voice of Jesus is thunderous. It is deafening. It is a voice that drowns out all other voices. When he speaks, you must listen. When he commands, you must obey. This is the authority of the voice of Jesus. Then in verse 16, we read, In his right hand, he held seven stars. And like the seven lampstands, we again get a symbol. And again, God makes it easy on us because he gives us the interpretation for this symbol. I'll look down at verse 20 again. Let's read in the middle. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, some take these angels to be heavenly, angelic beings. And certainly, at first glance, it would seem that way. But if you dig into the Greek a little bit, the word for angel simply means messenger. It actually has no reference to anything heavenly or anything angelic. So this could be a human being or what we would traditionally think of as an angel. Uh, But I think it's better to take that this is a human messenger because these messengers are tasked with taking physical letters and delivering them to physical churches, churches made of actual human beings. So probably uh, these seven messengers are seven human leaders of these seven churches, uh, pastor types, elder types, who are responsible for relaying the message of Jesus to these churches. So seven pastors are held in the hand of of Jesus, the right hand. And, and here's another whiplash moment. In the midst of all this judgment, fiery eyes, waterfall, thunderous like voice, we get this really tender and gentle image of Jesus holding spiritual leaders in his right hand. And the Bible The right hand is a place of protection and safekeeping. Psalm 63, 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. As I mentioned, I have three sons. Their ages are 7, 5, and 2. And sometimes we play this game, very simple game, kind of a keep-away game where I hold a ball, maybe like a plush soccer ball or something, and their one job is to knock it out of my hand. And uh, they could do whatever they want. They just got to get this ball out of my hand. And I am happy to report to you today that I dominate them in this game. I am undefeated. They have not once knocked this ball out of my hand. Because if I want to remain undefeated, all I got to do is this, right? Hey, hey, hey. You want to get this? Yeah, it's up here. And even if I want to mess with them, hold it down low. Like, hey, here you go. I just got to grip onto it. And they still can't get it. And this is the, the image here. That Jesus' right hand is invincible. The strength that he has in his hand, and he holds, he protects for safekeeping 
these pastors, these spiritual leaders. And I got to tell you guys, this is a a particular encouragement uh, to pastors like myself in a time when the heat's being turned up on pastors and persecution is looming at the door. But Jesus will protect us. Jesus will keep us safe. And with that, the vision abruptly shifts gear again uh, from safety in his right hand to a killing instrument coming out of his mouth. Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. At this time, there were mainly two types of swords. There was a sword that was sharp on one side, kind of like a machete, and it was used on a farm. And then there was a two-edged sword, sharp on both sides, and this was used in war. This was designed to administer lethal force. Make no doubt about it. This sword, this two-edged sword, is a symbol of judgment. But notice Jesus doesn't take this sword out of a sheath from his belt, like you normally would, but he takes it out of his mouth. And this is a jarring picture. I mean, this is shocking. If you saw someone pull a full-length sword out of their mouth, if you weren't at the circus, then you would be super weirded out. What this is showing us is that Jesus' sword is not a, a, an actual sword. It's not a physical sword, but it is, it is a weapon that comes forth from his mouth. His lethal weapon is his word. He doesn't need a physical sword. His word is powerful enough to bring judgment and condemnation on his enemies. He once said, let there be light. And with just a word, light appeared and darkness fled. And it's by this word, this same powerful word, that his enemies will fall. Jesus is the one with greatest authority, so no enemy can ever resist him. He is the one with eternality, and so no enemy will ever outlast him. He is the one with an invincible weapon, so no enemy will ever survive him. And I wonder, is this your Jesus? Is this the Jesus that comes to mind when you hear his name, a warrior, that That executes judgment? You know, it's not every day that you talk to a beaver. But in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the character Susan does. And she's speaking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in this book. Uh, Mr. Beaver explains, Aslan is a lion, The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is your Jesus... 
both good and a lion? So we've seen Jesus as the high priest, the eternal judge, and now, third, let's see him as the resurrected Savior. Verses 17 to 18. Uh, Here is John's reaction to the vision. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Uh, John is simply overwhelmed. He's on the brink of fainting. And remember who this is. John was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. By all accounts, from what we can read in Scripture, John's best friend was Jesus. They were close. And yet we see John falling at the feet of his best friend like a dead man. And that's that's strange. That's not how I interact with my best friend. If I see my best friend, I give him a handshake, give him a little love. You know, well, what's up, man? How's it going? I even give him a little push. What you been up to, man? That's how we interact with our best friends. But this is very much not what's going on here. John falls down fearful and in great dread. Is Jesus your best friend? I hope so. I hope you talk with him. I hope you fellowship with him. I hope, I hope you, you share your heart, that you put your, your, your full heart on the table with Jesus. Let him know how you're feeling. Let him know what you're going through. I hope you treat him as your best friend, but understand that your relationship with him is not complete, complete and it's not right unless your relationship also has a little bit of fear. Unless it has a little bit of amazement. Unless you are absolutely overwhelmed in worship. Just like John. And when he falls like a dead man, this is what happens. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. If you look back at verse 8, we see a similar title. uh, The Alpha and the Omega. It's a cool title. Right? Sounds epic. You've probably heard it before. The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. But what what exactly does it mean? Well, as you might know, uh, if you've ever studied Greek or physics, uh, you would know that Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And this is a literary device that's being used to highlight everything in between two extreme opposites. And so when Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, he is showing that he is the beginning and he is the end, highlighting everything in between, that he is sovereign over everything from first to last, that he reigns supreme over all of history. This is the sovereign one, and he uses his hand to touch John, the same hand that touched lepers, that touched the the eyes of blind men, uh, the same hands that were nailed to a cross. Uh, This hand touches John, and the voice with the roar of many waters now speaks compassionately 
fear not. Fear not. I'm for you, not against you. Yes, I am the eternal judge. But I am your great high priest. I will slay my enemies. But I will rescue my people. Jesus continues to describe himself in verse eight, uh, 18. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I died. I know that's not LOL funny, but you got to at least smile at that, right? No one should be able to say that. I died. And here I am, speaking to you. He has flames in his eyes. He is very much alive. In fact, he says, I am alive forevermore. I was raised never to die again. If you remember, there were some other people in the Bible, very few, who were raised to life as well. The most famous one being Lazarus. And Lazarus, poor Lazarus, had to die twice. Can you imagine Lazarus on his deathbed? Oh, here we go again. But Jesus dies once, is raised to life, never to die again. He is alive forevermore. And on top of that, he says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, these two words, death and Hades, are used synonymously here. Uh, Sometimes Hades is used to describe hell, but here, paired with death, it probably just means the place of the dead. So death and Hades are paired together really just to convey a singular idea of death. Jesus holds the keys of death. And when you hold the keys to something, it means that you and you alone can grant access. You and you alone can let people in and you can let people out. You can lock the door. You can unlock the door. Only Jesus can let people enter death. He alone decides when people die. Your death date is not determined by your persecutors, by your health, by circumstances, by tragedy. Your, your death date is determined by the sovereign Alpha and Omega. And Jesus is also the one who can let people out of death. This is speaking of our future resurrection. When we enter the room of death, Jesus can unlock the door, swing it wide open, and release us to everlasting life. All those who place their faith in him will experience this resurrection that Jesus alone can grant. So we've seen this passage is pretty schizophrenic, right? It can leave you asking, okay, which which Jesus are we talking about here? The, The one that we can lay our head on or the one who smites his enemies? The one with tenderness in his eyes or the one with fire in his eyes? The one with words that are like a sword or the one with words full of grace and truth? And the answer is both. 
This is a full portrait of who Jesus is. Not, not a first impression. Not, not a shallow first encounter, but, but a more in-depth view of who our Savior is. And we see that he is multidimensional. Is this the Christ that you come to worship every Sunday? Is this the Christ that you sing to? Is this the Christ that you are talking to when you pray? Is this the Christ that you tell your non-Christian friends about? Because if you see Christ truly, accurately, and fully, you're going to be blown away by his majesty and you're going to be drawn close by his grace. You're going to be awestruck and assured. You're going to be convicted and comforted. Well, today we've seen a vision of Christ, and this is the vision we need. Uh, as our country changes and changes fast, this is the vision of Christ that we need as persecution heats up. Uh, this is the vision of Christ that will shake us from spiritual apathy. Uh, this is the vision of Christ that will cause rain to fall on our spiritually dry times. This is the vision of Christ that we need if we're going to shake ourselves from that sin that so easily entangles us. That sin. The one that you just can't seem to shake free of. See this Christ. Have this Christ in mind. And you will see sin slowly but surely melt away in your life. I, I do love this church. Uh, many of you are, are personal friends of mine. I've gotten to know many more of you through uh, speaking here and, and doing retreats and things like that. And uh, speaking with Pastor Mark uh, just the other day outside Salt and Straw uh, uh, over some boba, and then we got ice cream afterwards. Yeah, we went double dessert. Uh, it was a joy uh, just to hear about... Uh, what you guys are up to and how God is working through you and just how many hours you guys are pouring into this church and, and all the things you guys are doing right. And I was, I was encouraged. Uh, I was so encouraged and joyful as I heard about uh, this church. But I want you guys to understand that there, there is a ceiling for this church of, of how high you can rise. And the ceiling for how high this church can go is your view of Jesus. The greatness of a church is not determined by the bigness of its membership or the bigness of its building or the bigness of its budget. The greatness of a church is determined by the bigness of their Savior. How big is Jesus to you? That's going to determine how far you guys go in your own spiritual lives and in furthering the gospel in this community. Uh, if you're not a part of this church and maybe you're visiting for the first time, second time, third time, and you're new uh, so glad to have you, uh, glad that you're spending your Sunday morning with all of us, and you've come on a great morning, because uh, we've looked at this passage that gives a crystal clear view of who 
Jesus is. And I hope that you've gathered enough from this passage to know that you do not want to be at the tip of Jesus's two-edged sword. That he will bring judgment on sinners, those who have broken his laws. And the Bible tells us that that's everyone. But at the same time, Jesus will show mercy. He will show compassion. He will give full forgiveness to all those who cry out to him in faith. And so if you're not a Christian here, this passage calls you to place your trust in this Jesus, to depend upon him, to fall upon him, to cling to him, to follow him, to forsake your sins and commit your life to him because there's no one else worthy of following. There's no one else worthy of worshiping. This Jesus is God himself. Uh, This Jesus is worthy of any and all worship we could possibly give him because scripture tells us that he is the anointed one. The Son of Man, yet Son of God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, the Chief Cornerstone, Emmanuel, God with us, Faithful and True, the Holy One of Israel, the Lamb of God who was slain for our sin, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Suffering Servant. The one pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. A man of sorrows, redeemer, deliverer, the Lord of the Sabbath, the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the author and finisher of our faith, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's pray to him now. Lord Jesus, we bow before you because we know the truth of what Scripture says about you. We surrender our lives. We commit them to you because you are our God. There is no one worthy of being followed. There is no one worthy of our worship other than you. And so thank you, Lord, for this very clear passage uh, that has put you on display. And thank you that uh, we do not suffer your judgment when we place our faith in you, but instead we enjoy your grace. And our Lord and Savior, as we sing to you now, uh, I pray that uh, these words would become real to us, uh, that our hearts would well up and overflow with worship, knowing that we come before you, not on our own merits, but on the merits of our great high priest, you who, who were slain on the altar of Calvary for us. And may we rejoice and praise you today because of this truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.